Okay, let's begin with going to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that there is no work that we can do to merit our salvation because you have done it all. We thank you that it is your work of grace from beginning to end, for it is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit which uses your finished work of revelation, the scripture, to cause us to have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How great a salvation we have. Father, now as we embark on a very... Uh, profound, concentrated, difficult study. I just pray your grace and mercy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Lord, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. May you help each of us, Lord, to grasp that which your spirit has to teach us, even if there are things that we have heard all of our lives that, that, uh, are, that may be wrong. Would you just help the Holy Spirit to convict? Because we want to know what the word of God has to teach, not what man has to teach. Help us, Lord, to be teachable, to be flexible, to learn what the scripture really has to say. And we will give you all the praise and glory for everything that is accomplished here, not only today, but Lord willing, in the next weeks to come. For we pray in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, in today's lesson, we're going to begin to study the third significant event of this mighty sixth chapter of John's gospel. And it is given to us in the form of a sermon. This is the fifth chronological sermon in our Life of Christ study. This discourse was given to many of the same crowd who had been fed by him miraculously just the previous day. This crowd, what they had done is they had come back in boats, that boats that had come over from Tiberias... Maybe they had been blown over in that storm because the storm was blowing the right direction. If you see where Tiberius is, it's on the southwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. So the storm could have blown the boats across over to where the crowd was on the eastern side of the sea near Bethsaida. Or the other possibility is how the boats from Tiberius got to um, to Bethsaida first thing in the morning is that they knew there was a big crowd over there, the owners of the boats, and perhaps you can see across the the lake, the Sea of Galilee, so perhaps they understood that those people would need transportation back and it was a way for them to make a few bucks. So they would, early in the morning, after the storm was over, row over, get over to um, Bethsaida to take some of those people back. Anyway, the crowd which had been fed the previous day got in these boats that had come over from Tiberias, because first of all, they got up and they looked around and they didn't find Jesus. He wasn't there. And uh, they were mystified as to where he could be because um, they had seen that his disciples had left the area. Remember when his disciples went down and got on the ship and he went up? The crowd saw that. They saw that the disciples got in the only boat that there was and crossed over and that Jesus was not with them, that he had gone up alone into the mountain to pray. And then what had happened? There had been this horrific storm that had hit, and they all knew about the storm. And so they knew Jesus couldn't leave in the middle of a storm to get all the way back to Bethsaida. Besides, there was no boat. How would he get, not Bethsaida, Capernaum. How would he get back to Capernaum? He would have had to walk around like they did. Remember when they ran across and we said something like eight or nine miles to get from Capernaum to Bethsaida? Well, he would have had to go on back that way on foot. But who would do that in the dark and in in a storm? It wouldn't make sense. 
And if he waited until after the storm was over, there wasn't time for him to have gotten back to Capernaum. When did the storm end? At the time of the fourth watch, which was, that's when he came walking out to them on the sea. And then, of course, there was that little episode with Peter. And then by the time the Lord got into the boat, I believe this. I got to thinking about this. I would not be surprised that the minute the Lord Jesus and Peter stepped into that boat and the, and the, and the sea was instantly calm and they were instantly at the other shore, that at the very same second, instantly the sun rose. Because remember, we said it was right at the time before the sun would come up. So I wouldn't be surprised if all of those things happened at the same time. And people back in those days went to bed. They didn't have electricity, so they went to bed when it got dark. And that meant that they got up early because they'd been sleeping a long time. So these people, when they got up, after they had gone to bed, started looking for Jesus. And we can imagine it was right at sunrise. And they're looking all over for him, and he's not there. And when they get over, when they get, hire these boats and get back over to Capernaum where they figure he must have gone and they find him, they realize he didn't have enough time if he had gotten up like they did early in the morning to walk back nine miles to Capernaum. So are you following me? The short of it is they're mystified. How in the world did he get to Capernaum from Bethsaida without a boat? So let's read about that because that's, He doesn't ever really answer their question, but what he does is give them instead the bread of life discourse. But let's look about their mystification, and that's found in uh, starting at verse 22, John 6, 22. Right before that, it says that's when, you know, the disciples willingly received the Lord into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. So they were immediately back in Capernaum. And then verse 22 says, the day following... When the people which stood on the other side of the sea, that's back on the eastern shore near Bethsaida where they had been fed, when those people saw that there was none other boat there save that one whereinto his disciples were entered and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat but that his disciples were gone away alone. And then this is a parenthesis. That John gives to us, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat the bread after the, that the Lord had given thanks. It says in verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping. That means they got into those boats that had come over from Tiberias and they came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? All right, so when they didn't find him in um, Bethsaida and they went back over to Capernaum, they were absolutely mystified as to how he got there without a boat. So they asked him this question, which is, Rabbi, whence camest thou thither? And really, in asking when did he come there, they're also asking, how did you get here? And to that question, He did not respond with an answer to their direct question, but rather he responded to what is commonly referred to as the bread of life discourse. Now, you know the word discourse and the word sermon you can use interchangeably. They're one and the same. This is the bread of life sermon, if you'd rather have that word. And in this sermon, Jesus revealed to the people who had come to find out how he got there, 
He revealed to them the fact that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life that came down from where? From heaven. Isn't that a claim to deity? Definitely. He's the bread of life which came down from heaven to give man what? Eternal life or everlasting life. Those terms, everlasting life or eternal life, are used 17 times in John's gospel. And aren't you glad that that expression uses the word life? What if it was that he came down from heaven just to offer us everlasting existence? Do you know there are some people who who take their lives because they just exist? Aren't you glad that term included the word life, everlasting life? To just exist would be awful. To exist throughout eternity without life, meaning without purpose and meaning and all that the word life includes. You know, think about sometimes just the little things. I'm glad he promised us everlasting life. So the first thing that the Lord did... Now, we're going to look at five, uh, four subdivisions of this sermon, at least this first part of the sermon. We're going to break the sermon, and you'll notice that the sermon includes a lot of dialogue. What happens is he'll talk a little bit, and then he'll get interrupted. The crowd will interrupt him. They'll, they'll ask a question, or they'll make a comment. They'll be sarcastic or whatever. And then next week, when we get into the second part of the sermon, we're going to notice that it sort of changes. He was um, there in Capernaum somewhere, and the next thing we know, they're in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the discussion continues, and all of a sudden there's Pharisees involved in the, in the whole dialogue. So there's um, different things that go on, but it's, it's kind of a dialogue. It goes back and forth, the whole sermon. But the first thing he did here, oh, I was going to tell you the four subdivisions. We're going to be looking at the true motive, why this crowd really followed him, We're going to also talk about true meat. We're going to talk about true manna. And then we're going to talk about a true mystery. All right, in verse 26, the first thing the Lord did was rebuke the multitudes for their real motive, their true motive in seeking for him. He didn't answer their question as to how or when he got to Capernaum, how he got across the lake. Because that was a private sign miracle for who? For only his disciples. That was a private sign. Instead, what he did for the crowd, when they asked him the question, he rebuked them for their materialistic motivation to seek him out and for their lack of spiritual perception. They only saw with physical eyes not with spiritual eyes. They only saw with physical eyes all of his miracles, everything that he had performed. And remember, he had spent most of his ministry in that area. He's up in Galilee, in the area of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Remember what he had already said to them back in Matthew 11? They had seen so many miracles. They had heard the uh, Sermon on the Mount. These people were more privileged than anybody who had ever lived. And he had said, woe unto you, Bethsaida and Chorazin and um, Capernaum. If, if, the, if the mighty works that had been done in you had been performed in Tyre or so- Sodom or Gomorrah, you know, they would have repented long ago. These were spiritually privileged people. 
They didn't need any more miracles. They, but the problem is, what do you think would have happened if he had told them how he had crossed the sea? What do you really think would have happened? Yes. I, some of them wouldn't have believed it without seeing anyway. That, you know what they would say? All right, we want to see a repeat performance. We don't believe you. There is no way you walked across that sea. And then you got in the boat and it was instantly there. Right. <laughs> they wouldn't have believed because they didn't, have, they didn't have a will. They didn't want to believe. So he says in verse 36, ye seek me. Here's the, here's the true motive. Ye seek me. Oh, I didn't read this. Let me read it. I'm sorry. Let's start at verse 26. Jesus, I'm going to actually read the whole passage because I may forget to read it. So it's important that we read it first. Starting verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them and said, verily, verily. And every time Jesus says, verily, verily, what does that mean? Pay attention. This is everything he says is true, but this is in particularly very important. He says, verily, verily, or of a truth of a truth. I say unto you, ye seek me, true motive, not because ye saw the miracles. And when he says saw, he's talking about with spiritual eyes. Of course, they saw the miracle. They saw that everybody was fed with just two fish and five loaves. They saw all the people he had healed all day long the day before. But he's talking about they didn't see with spiritual eyes. You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And then he says in verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. See, they didn't really want the Lord. They wanted the loaves, not the Lord, the loaves. Their belly was their God. All right, verse 28. Then said they unto him, you see the dialogue that goes on back and forth here. They said unto him, what shall we do? that we might work the works of God. Notice they use the works, plural, of God. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the singular work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then? Isn't it amazing how blind unbelief is? They had seen sign after sign, miracle after miracle, message after message, and they had just been miraculously fed the day before, and yet they ask him for a sign. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? And then they get really derogatory here. They say, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, notice it's a pronoun, the bread of God is he, not it. The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth unto life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And that sounds really good at first until we look at it and find out how it isn't really good. And verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, 
and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, that's with spiritual eyes, and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, we're going to be looking at those four subdivisions, and right now we're in the true motive. All right, he was telling them that their true motive was not because they sought him, was, but was because they, um, they did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, he's saying to them, your true motive for why you have come running after me is because your thoughts rise no higher than your carnal, physical needs. Remember I told you this last week? It's unbelievable, but they really just wanted to get up and have a miraculous breakfast. They wanted him to, to feed them again. The miracle, he said, that I performed on you yesterday, actually he had performed many, many miracles. He had spent the whole day performing miracles. But now he says the miracle of the feeding was totally lost on you because you failed to get the message of the miracle. But he was so patient and so kind, he was going to spell out that message for them. And that's what he does in the Bread of Life sermon. Now, even in saying those words, the Lord was revealing to the people his deity because who but God himself would know the inner motives of their heart, right? So he's really revealing to them that he can read their hearts. He knows the true reason why they're seeking for him. He was telling them that he was well acquainted with their purpose for coming to him. Although outwardly, you know, to the world, it would have appeared that these people believed in him and were ready to honor him. I mean, after all, they wanted to crown him king the day before, and now they, they spent all morning trying to follow him and find him. But Jesus wasn't deceived. If we had looked at this crowd, we would probably say, oh, they're Christians. Look at how they follow after Jesus and want to be with Jesus. But we can't always tell from the outside or the actions, can we? Only he can see the heart. Only he knows why people engage in some of their religious duties. He knew it was for, uh, for temporal blessings, you know, earthly blessings and not spiritual blessings that they followed him all around. If they had truly understood the significance of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they would have done uh, what the disciples had done. The disciples, you know, left everything in order to follow him. And I got to thinking about why did Jesus give the disciples that added advantage of seeing him walk on water and calm the storm? What about if he had done that for the crowd? Wouldn't many of them have come to the same conclusion and said, well, thou art the son of, of the living God? No, they wouldn't have. Now, some in the crowd would have. I am sure in this crowd there were some who truly did put their faith, their, their sincere faith and belief in him. But, you know, I got to thinking about the disciples who are now the apostles in our um, Life of Christ study. But when they all came to the Lord did they come because of great and mighty miracles that they had seen him perform? They didn't. You know what? We had Andrew and John were the first ones. 
Why did they follow Jesus? Based on the testimony only, the word only, of one of God's spokesmen, John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. He pointed him out, and he, and he said, Follow him, and they did. They didn't see a miracle. Jesus didn't perform a miracle. They followed him. Jesus said, Come and see, and they came and saw. What about uh, Andrew went and got Peter? John went and got James, his, both of their brothers. Did they see miracles before they believed in Jesus? They believed the testimony of their brothers. We've met the Messiah. We come and see. And they came and saw. And then we had Philip. And Jesus just walked up to Philip and said, follow me. And what did Philip do? Followed him. Philip went and got Nathaniel. We have the same thing. The only other call we know about is the call of Matthew, who was formerly Levi, the publican, the tax collector. And what happened in his situation? Jesus saw him at the tax collecting booth and he said, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. None of them, as far as we know, ever saw Jesus perform a miracle before they followed him. Isn't that interesting? It was based on his person and the word about him. You know, that he matched the word of God's prophets and he just matched up everything that they were looking for. And to them, he revealed more light and gave them miracles and more and more. But it's the faith comes by what? Hearing, not seeing miracles. I, I wondered about this. I wondered if the only disciple who followed Jesus because of a miracle might not have been Judas Iscariot. It's a thought. We don't know how Judas was called. But maybe he saw, maybe he saw Jesus raise the dead or something. And maybe that's why he came. I don't know. But it would be interesting to, to find out in eternity. All right. So in, the, in revealing their motive, he's, he's revealing his deity. What is the lesson for us? Well, the lesson simply is that Jesus has omniscient, omnipotent knowledge of every man's heart. He knows the true inner motives of each and every single one of us. You know, man sees the outward, but God sees the heart. He knows about the motives of those who are only interested in him for the loaves. Are there many people today who go to churches and profess Christ, but really they're only interested in the loaves, in what Jesus can do for them? Absolutely. Many, many people go to church. How can I be entertained? What can I get out of this? You know, what is he going to do for me? So much of it is me-centered instead of Christ-centered. Or people even go to church to, to make social contacts, believe it or not. Or, you know, that's where their friends go, so they go there. Or to help ease their conscience that they've done, they've performed their religious duty for the week. Uh, or they come to him because they have this ma- ma- mistaken idea based on false theology that they will be healthy and wealthy forever. You know, the loave theology, if, if, they, um, if they add Jesus to their lives. Although men may only able to be able to um, make an assessment from the outward appearance, as it tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God can read the heart like an open book. He knows what's going on within us that nobody else can see. He knows the hypocrite, and he knows the tear. He knows the genuine from the false. So don't be deceived 
There are so many Christians who are deceived by the outward, by the crowds. You know, you go along and you'll see a church that is really prospering. It has crowds and crowds, some of these mega churches that actually have like 15,000, 20,000 people, and people will make the assessment that that must be a great church. That's not always true. You don't, I mean, you don't go by the outward. You don't go by the wealth of a church. Some of the very wealthiest churches in existence are apostate, totally apostate. And you don't go by the wealth of vocabulary. You know, I've heard this too. Some guy can really preach. Oh, he's got this magnificent, he's so eloquent, and he has such a vocabulary, and he's got 10 PhDs after his name. So what? If he's not teaching according to this big book, I don't give a flip. You know, many uh, are dressed as angels of the light. And they're, they're just deceiving multitudes, and it's getting worse. We are living in the days that the book of Jude t- talked about, the days of, of apostasy. So don't be deceived by all the religious trappings and the garments and the vocabulary. And I'm glad. We were talking about this earlier. I'm glad that the Lord knows the heart, because even though some of us may fumble and we may fall, and like Peter, we may Blum, 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 blum. <laughs> we may sink at times. He really knows the heart. And so just like Peter, if you're genuine, and this is important to search your motives, really, really search your motives for why you're, why you're following Christ, if you are, and I hope you are, and serving him, why you've given your life to him. Then you can say like Peter, you know, Lord, even though I fail, you knowest all things. Therefore, you know that I love you. Even though I sink and even though I fail and fumble and stumble, you know my heart, Lord. My heart really does love you. Peter jumped out of that boat. Why? He loved the Lord. He just wanted to be with him. It wasn't like the crowds. Crowds followed him. They didn't love the Lord. They wanted to use him. They wanted to use him for their own personal gain. They wanted to be fed and they wanted a king who could leave, lead them in a rebellion against Rome. Well, having rebuked them, the Lord at once told them not to labor for food that spoils and doesn't last, but to expend their efforts. And the word he used for labor is to really in deadly earnest, uh, spare no pains. It's a strong Greek word to expend their efforts for that which will last forever. Not just for the here and now. He was saying that men should be deadly serious about spiritual matters rather than physical temporal matters. But these people were, as I said, more concerned with their stomachs. They were totally blind to the needs of their soul. That's what their concern was physical, not spiritual. And he wanted to make it crystal clear that his real ministry was not to feed men, but to what? Save men, not to feed them, to save them. The Lord's rebuke is, is one so many today, even Christians, need to take far more seriously than they do. How many are there out there who take excessive attention, make excessive time, spend a lot of time and a lot of energy, a lot of attention to laboring for that which is going to perish Laboring for the upkeep, the maintenance of of these old perishing bodies, for example. How many women are out there today, they're not here this morning, where they could be being fed spiritually, but they're out there somewhere doing something for their bodies. 
I'm not saying that we don't maintain these bodies. We need to upkeep them, and we need to look as nice as we can, as long as we can. But, you know, there, you know, with the balance, there's no balance. It's all about that. It's all about this world. And they're neglecting, at the upkeep of the body and, and this physical world, they're neglecting their soul. How many are making absolutely no or very little, maybe an hour a week, time for, for their soul? You know, they maybe go to Sunday morning church for one hour, and then they think they've done their thing. But he said what? Labor for the meat that endureth. He, he was here reproving the common habit of mankind to labor only for the things of time and neglect the things of eternity. And which is a lot longer, the here and now or the here and after? It is so ridiculous how out of kilter, how out of priority most of mankind has their priorities. They're all about the here and now, and this is a tiny drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Uh, He said to his listeners that they were laboring for the meat that perishes, and they were doing nothing for their immortal souls. And they were, if you think about how eager they were to follow him, that they even outran him to get over to Bethsaida the day before. They beat him there, and that was like a nine-mile trip over there. They were laboring to get there to him. Why? Because they loved him like Peter? No, because they had sick people. They were sick. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to to see him perform miracles because that was their entertainment. They didn't know he was going to feed them, but when he did feed them, then they were willing to run all the way back because, oh, now we get an extra bonus. We get, um, you know, fish and chips as well. <laughs> but their labor, so many people will expend all kinds of energy to, to, to take care of their bodies, to make their houses look pretty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They won't say they're too tired to do that, will they? But invite them to Bible study or invite them to church, all of a sudden, mm, too tired, that's too much work. I can't do ten questions a week. Oh, but they can flip through 10 channels in 10 seconds, can't they? I mean, it's just, you know, we should be what? Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then everything else. I promise you it works. Everything else will fall into place. You'll have time to take care of your body. You'll have time to do the other things. Seek him first, and then all these other things will be added unto you. When he said, labor for the meat that endureth, it was very similar to when he said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. Expend all your energies, whatever it takes, ladies, to make sure that you are on that narrow road that leads to life. Whatever it takes. And if I I know somebody who's lost, you know what I pray? Whatever it takes, Lord, in their lives to get their attention, do it. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Labor for that meat that never perishes. Yes, it takes time and energy to study this book, doesn't it? But this book is what endures for all eternity. And this is what is going to make your life the abundant life. I promise you, it does. All right, so that's what he was telling them. Uh, there And then uh, I thought about the fact that this part of his discussion really parallels his conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, we're only in John chapter 6. This is our third year of Bible study, and we've only gotten to chapter 6. How many chapters are in John? 
21. But you know, it's pretty easy to, un- to uh, remember all the chapters, and I-, I like to do this, especially with John, because he's easy. John chapter 1. What was John chapter 1 about? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then it was a lot of it was about John the Baptist. And then the third thing was about the call of the first six disciples. So we have the word, John the Baptist, the first six disciples. What was John chapter 2 all about? This is easy to remember. So when the pastor says, open your Bibles to John chapter 2, you can say, ah, that's the chapter where he turned water into wine. And then what else did he do? Cleanse the temple. That's John chapter 2. What was John chapter 3? Everybody knows John chapter 3. He had that talk with Nicodemus. That's your born-again chapter. That's a very important chapter. That's your God so loved the world chapter. Then what was John chapter 4? Woman at the well. I'm pointing to Caitlin because she just wrote a beautiful poem on the woman at the well. That's the woman at the well chapter. Then we had John chapter 5. Easy again to remember. That's the chapter about the man who was at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. I remember it because there were five porticos. I know I have dumb reasons for how I remember things, but... That's the, uh, that's the chapter on the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Then we get into John chapter 6. From now on, the rest of your life, when somebody says John chapter 6, I want you to affiliate it with three things, okay? Number one, the feeding of the 5,000. Think of bread, okay? Number two, walking on water. And number three, ties in with the feeding of the 5,000, which would be the bread of life discourse. So when you hear John chapter 6, think of Bread of life discourse. However you can affiliate that in your mind, I want you to do that. It really helps. It really does. In the future, it will help. John chapter 6, I know that. That's the bread of life discourse. And what is 666? That's when they turned and walked no more with him. Remember that, because that's how it all ends. Very sad, except for the disciples. All right, anyway, that was just a lesson. I can't help the teacher in me trying to do things like that. All right. I was saying it reminds me of John chapter 4, which is what? Woman at the well. In that case, it was water that the conversation had centered on. And here, what is it? Bread. There it was water. Here it's bread. And in both cases, what he was doing was teaching spiritual truths about eternal life in him. And in both situations, he was misunderstood by his listeners. But at least in the woman's situation, she did finally get it. The Samaritan woman finally did get it. But at first, they only thought in terms of physical. And they took his words literally rather than symbolically. And that's the danger. That's what's happened. Why this whole doctrine of transubstantiation has developed is because people still take his words in the bread of life discourse literally that you have to eat the body of Christ and you have to drink the blood of Christ literally. So you have to trans, transpose the, the wafer and the wine into the real blood and body of Christ. Still taking these words physically, literally when he meant them to be spiritual. So let's not make the same mistake. He's talking to them symbolically. It was real water that the woman desired when um, Jesus said, you know, I have water that you can drink. She said, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. To draw. That was in John 4, 15. Uh, she took him literally. She said, that would be great. Let me have your water, and then I won't have to come out this distance to the well every day. And the same thing here with when he's offering them bread. The people take him literally. 
But it's interesting that he did offer water and then he did offer bread. Bread and water are important. What do we call them? The staples of life. A person could live for a long, long time just on bread and water. They are uh, important essentials to maintain life. And particularly back in that day, bread was a main staple. Um, Also, there, there are two things that you find anywhere you can go in the world. People will drink water and people will eat bread of one kind or another. Many different kinds of bread, but every people group in the world eat bread. It's the staff of life. But when Jesus said that he is the living water which springs up within a man unto everlasting life and that he is the bread of life which came down from heaven to give life unto the world, notice not just life unto Israel, like manna, he was speaking spiritually and he was speaking symbolically of the fact that he is the sustenance, he is the the, uh, satisfaction of life. He is the one who sustains, he is the one who satisfies. He is the one who gives life. If you notice in verse 33, he speaks really in that one verse of his incarnation. You know, he came down from heaven. That means he already existed in heaven, right? He is the eternal son of God. He existed with his father in heaven from all from the beginning, from the time of eternity past. But he came down as he, to, from heaven as the son of man. He was always the son of God, but in his incarnation, he became the son of man. So in that verse, when he says he came down from heaven, we have the word of his incarnation and his humility, his great humility. He didn't have to leave heaven to come down here to save us, but he did. We also have word of his crucifixion. Did he know ahead of time he was going to be crucified? Absolutely. He said that he came to give his life unto the world. And also in uh, where he says, I am the bread of life, which is in what verse? Verse 35, he speaks very clearly there of his deity. And we'll get into that in a minute. So his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his deity. There's a beautiful promise contained for us in verse 27. Jesus tells us that he himself, the Son of Man, will give eternal food to all who ask, all who seek for it, all who ask for it. If If you are given something, what does that mean? It's free. It's free. You cannot buy it. It's give, it has to be given. And in the latter part of uh, verse 27, he, he tells us by what right he can do this. By what right can he give us eternal life? And it is because in the eternal counsels of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus, who was in that council as the eternal Son of God, was sealed, designated, and appointed the Son of and appointed the Son of Man, the incarnate Word to be this giver of everlasting life to man. He says, you see at the end of verse 7, he says, uh, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father, what? Sealed. It's this, uh, The Son of Man is an office for which Jesus has been sealed by the Father. God 
The reason that Jesus, as the Son of Man, can give that which endures into everlasting life is because he was divinely authorized to administer eternal life by none other than God the Father. And a further wonderful thought is that you and I, who have believed in Christ, are also sealed. Jesus was sealed because of his own sinless perfection. And you and I are sealed, not because of our perfection, but because we have believed in his perfection, and his perfection has been given to us, has been imputed to us. And we are therefore sealed with what? The Holy Spirit of promise, because and only because of our identification and our union with Christ. We are accepted in the beloved because of our identification with the Lord Jesus. And the indwelling Holy Spirit is God's seal upon us. We're not sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal. It's our promise. It's actually in the Greek, it's called arabon. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a he. But he is our engagement ring. The promise that we, the bride, will one day guaranteed be married to the bridegroom. He is our seal. The, the world doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Jude 19. The Holy Spirit is not in unbelievers. The Holy Spirit is uniquely for believers. He is our seal. So not only is Christ sealed, but because we're in Christ, we too are sealed. That speaks of security. And we'll get more into that later. All right, in John 6.28, we find the crowd's response. Okay, we find the crowd's response to the Lord's offer to give them the meat which endures unto everlasting life. They say, what shall we do? And the Greek refers to as a continual habit. What shall we continue to do that we might work the works? You know, man always thinks in terms of good works. they, They ask the question in the plural. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? It's a familiar feature of human nature that man craves to do something to earn his own salvation. Isn't that true? All other religions besides Christianity are an attempt at a Tower of Babel, man attempting to work his way to God. And why is that? Well, works promote pride. And they, and they promote boasting. If man could work his way to God, and we, were all, we all got to heaven by some kind of work, you know what we'd be doing? We'd be walking around heaven boasting about how we got there. Well, here's how I got here. I cut myself, and I cried out, and I tortured myself, and I beat myself, and then I allowed myself to be martyred. I was blown up in a terrorist attack, and here I am. Aren't I wonderful? You know, works promote bragging and pride. So they say, what can we do? The crowd recognized that Jesus had said that they were to labor for the meat which does not perish. They understood that that he was saying God had a requirement for them. And so they said, tell us what that requirement is, and we will perform it. We'll do it. We'll keep doing it. Their pride is really evidenced in their question here. They believed that they could please God by doing something and thus merit eternal life merely by by performing some good works. Until, 
a man is truly born again, there is just something kind of repugnant to him about the idea of accepting salvation totally as a gift. This was Naaman's problem. Remember Naaman, the Syrian general who was a leper? He, didn't, he, didn't, he wanted to do something to be healed of his leprosy. He didn't want to just dip himself in the Jordan River. That was beneath him. It's, it's, a, it's a pride issue. That's why the Beatitudes start with what? Poverty of spirit. It all begins with humility. And if we're just given something, that's kind of humbling. You know what they had to do to get the manna? If manna's out on the ground every morning, what do you have to do to pick it up? You have to bend over. You have to stoop over. You know? That shows humility. It all begins with uh, that kind of mind frame. Poverty of spirit. Accepting a free gift. It's hard to accept a free gift. I don't have a problem with it. (laughs) But for a proud man, the unregenerate man, it's it's an issue. It's because the carnal, unregenerate mind is at enmity with God and is unable in all of its self-righteousness and pride to humble itself to the idea of receiving a gift. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain had a problem. He wanted to bring to God the labor of his own fruit, the labor of his own hands. And it made him mad that God accepted Abel's gift and not his. The natural mind of man is only occupied with his own doings and the desire to flatter itself when it consciously thinks of doing something for God. He likes to imagine in his human sinful pride that salvation is due him because he has earned it. You know, how many people think that there's a giant scale in heaven and because they've done more good works than bad works that they've earned their way they're going to they're gonna get in. Or how many people like to imagine that just by fasting and doing penance or in attending mass um, or, or their church or by torturing their bodies or keeping the law according to the traditions of the elders, my, by martyring themselves, by making some kind of a holy pilgrimage somewhere, or et cetera, et cetera, by doing confession, by taking the last rites, Whatever the man-imagined work might be, how many people are caught up in a work system? By far the vast majority of this world. Few, few there be that enter in by the narrow gate. The way of, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. The carnal heart is unwilling to come down to the place of being a beggar and receiving something for nothing. It was the carnal nature of the human heart which caused that rich young ruler, remember? He came to Jesus and he said the same thing. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The unregenerate man wants salvation on his terms, not on God's terms. He wants to be able to work for what he gets because then the glory goes to him. Uh, But God says he will not give his glory to another. Salvation cannot be earned. It is a free gift from God so that he and he alone gets the the glory. Well, the ever-patient Jesus answered the people's question. And here he's accommodating their language when he says, you know, uses the term work. He answers their question about what they could do to work the works of God. Verse 29, by saying, this is the work, singular, of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. He's saying there's only one thing God requires for obtaining eternal life, and what is that? 
that a man believe, that a man have faith in the one God sent into the world to meet his or her very deepest need, the need of the, uh, their sin issue. The only work, and we use that term loosely, uh, that pleases God in the life of an unbeliever is the work of believing in Jesus Christ. And that really can hardly be called a work because, you see, what is it really? What did Jesus call it? The work of, of us? He said, no, it is the work of God. Really, uh, just what, what our work is, if you want to use the term work, is trusting in what has already d- been done by God. It was God's work. In, in trusting what God has done in his son and not in what we can do in ourselves. It's a work of God, not the work of man. God has already provided the food, you know, the meat that never perishes. And here it is. And our only requirement is to partake of it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember the Philippian jailer asked the same question of Paul. What? What can I do to be saved? And, G- and Paul said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe in his finished work for you. And where was his work finished? Up on the cross. This is what God asks of man, to give up his own doings, his own efforts, his own, the, you know, his own fruit of his own labors, his own devised towers of Babel, and just believe in the finished work of his beloved son. It's so very simple, isn't it? Man has complicated the gospel message so badly, but it's so simple even a child can understand it. But there are so few also who are willing to, as a child, abandon their own doings, their own self-righteousness, their own man-invented ideas and traditions in order to accept his one way to life. In and of himself, man cannot do this. Again, it takes the work of God. We're told that none seek after God, right? No, not one. So in and of ourselves, we can't do it. It's really the work of God. It's all of God's grace. It's, it's the work of God. God uses his word, his Holy Spirit, to convict us of our sin and the work of, you know, to convict us of our need for the work he accomplished for us through his son. It's his word, his spirit, his son. It's all of God, isn't it? So even the work in believing is the work of God, the work of God's grace. Well, the next response of the people, I got to really hurry here. This is awful. (laughs) The next response of the people, and this we see in verses 30 to 33, exhibits to us how absolutely deep is the unbelief of man. The Lord had just said that the only work for obtaining eternal life was to what? Believe on him, the one who God had sent. And now they say, show us a sign that we may see and then believe you. This is a perfect picture of the hardened heart of man. These were the same people who the day before had seen him perform miracle after miracle all day long. And then they had been fed miraculously, you know, with just two fish and five barley loaves. And yet they say, show us a sign. Don't they remind you of after the the religious rulers, after he had suddenly appeared in the temple, just like it was predicted by Malachi, that when the Messiah comes, he would suddenly appear. And he did that, fulfillment of prophecy, and he cleansed the temple, which was also predicted 
in the Old Testament that he would do. And he did it single-handedly, which was amazing because the temple was literally full with thousands and thousands of people. He chased out all the money changers, all the animal sellers, just by himself. And what did they do? Say, show us a sign that we that you have uh, the right to do what you just did. And then we see this, we saw this again um, in Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees. He had just healed a blind, dumb, not meaning stupid, but couldn't speak, demoniac. The guy had three problems. Not only couldn't he speak, he was blind and he was filled with a demon. And Jesus healed him. And then what did they say? They said, uh, we would see a sign from thee. <laughs> this is just speaking of of the unbelief of man. Miracles. Do you know what? Miracles only create a craving for what? More miracles. No one is ever satisfied with enough miracles. You might have a miracle and you say, oh, I believe. Oh, Lord, I believe. And then about six months later, well, maybe that really wasn't a miracle. Maybe there really were stepping stones in the water. You know, all these excuses. Well, God, if you would just send me another miracle, then I really will believe. And I really will get serious about you. Miracles never satisfy. They just give a craving for more and miracles. They would never have had enough miracles to believe. Because the truth of the matter is that they had already more than sufficient evidence to indicate who Jesus was. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had John the, the Baptist, who was a, God of, a prophet of, of God, and they knew that. They had God's testimony. They, he had healed all their sick. He had raised the dead. He had been... He had given the Sermon on the Mount in that very area. He had, I mean, he had even the day before taught them about the kingdom, it says in Luke 9, 11. Not only did he heal, but he taught them that day he fed them. The, the bottom line is that they didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. And nothing has changed. It's still, still the same way with man today. People say, show me a miracle and I'll believe. But that's not the divine order of things. God doesn't say, see and then believe. He says, believe, and then you'll see. And that's the way it works. You, by faith, believe. And then he'll give you more miracles and signs than you can ever imagine. Actually, the truth of the matter is he's already given us more miracles and signs than we could ever imagine because he has written himself in creation. All you have to do is look at the beauty of these orange and yellow trees out here. And how can you not see God? Or look at your own body. How does the eyeball work? Do you know? It's a miracle that even one organ of our body, yet put all of, all of it together so I'm up here doing this and not even thinking about it. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Look up at the heavens. The stars declare the glory of God. He has put knowledge of himself in our consciences and in our heart. Man is without excuse. These people were really, this was an insult. He had just said that he was the one who had come down from heaven. And they said, basically, they're they're. they're being very derogatory here by saying, well, show us a sign and then we'll believe you. What they're really doing is saying, we don't believe you, you're a liar, is what they're saying. And then they get demanding. They get demanding because they actually tell him what sign they want. They say, our fathers, and this is, uh, this is something else, so I could make another lesson on that. But remember, the woman at the well did the same thing. She said, our fathers used to worship at this mountain. You know, da, da. It's so interesting how many people will go back to what their fathers did. 
their forefathers. How many people are in churches that teach wrong doctrine just because our fathers were always at this church and this is a heritage thing and we wouldn't dare leave this church because our fathers have built to put the foundation in. Even if they're teaching wrong doctrine. Some Muslims don't know that their churches are teaching doctrine. But this is the same old thing. They said, well, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They think they're real pious here, too, because they're quoting scripture. Well, Satan can quote scripture. (laughs) They're pointing back to Moses and what they perceive to be a comparable miracle that he had performed. You know, the daily feeding of the Jews in the wilderness. What they're doing was drawing a comparison between Jesus and Moses. We talked about this last week. Their argument was really this. What proof have we that you are greater than Moses? If we're to believe that you are the sent one of God, don't you think that you should show us a greater miracle than Moses performed? After all, you only fed us once. How many times did Moses feed their forefathers? I don't know. Many For 40 years he fed them. And millions of them. There were something like three million Jews that returned from the exodus in Egypt. So this, again, is very similar to what the woman at the well did after Jesus had told her that he would give her living water to drink. She said, in effect, well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than Jacob, who built this well? Uh, By the way, you know the signs of Moses? You know, they said, well, Moses performed many miracles. Big deal. You're performing all these miracles. Moses performed miracles. Do you know who the miracles that Moses were performed for? That was the wrong verbiage there, but he didn't perform his miracles for Israel. You know, like the frogs and all the things that he did, the boils and the even the firstborn dying. Those those miracles were for Pharaoh and for Egypt to let his people go. Miracles are for unbelievers to to believe. They're not for believers. Believers don't need them. He gives them in addition, but Those miracles Moses performed were really for Egypt. Well, anyway, back to the woman at the well. She did the same thing. The crowd's question was an incredible statement here of insult to the Lord. And it was also unbelief. They were, in effect, saying to Jesus, who, remember, had been so compassionate, so patient with them, so kind to them, because even his disciples had wanted to send them away. The people are hungry. Lord, send them away. But he didn't do that. Instead, what did he do? He fed them until they were filled to satisfaction but here they're saying what's so wonderful about your puny miracle but he's patient with them and uh, and he continues to have this conversation he says why don't you they said why don't you really prove yourself to us and feed us like moses did for 40 years and then maybe we'll take into consideration what you said about yourself and maybe then we'll accept you and believe on you and men today are no different You know, I think we're going to have to save our conversation on the doctrine of election and the free will of man and the security of the believer till next week. But let me just end with this. Men are no different today than they than they were back in in the Lord's day. Today, men are surrounded by innumerable evidences of the existence of God. So, as I said, they are absolutely without excuse. And yet, how frequently do we hear them say, show me proof that there is a God? Show me proof. They have, for one thing, the only thing they really need, and that is this book. And so many who will say that have never really even read this book. Do you know how many proofs are in this book? Innumerable. I don't think we could ever count them as many as the stars in the skies. 
The more I study this book, the more proofs I see that there is a God and that he wrote this book. There, I have no doubt in my mind that I am holding, holding the God-inspired word of, of all might. Every jot and tittle. It's so profound. It's so deep. It's tr- so true. Prophecies alone prove to us that there is a God. No one would be able to predict all the things Nostradamus or anyone else. I mean, they, they made one mistake, proven false, right? No mistakes in this book. Every prophecy he ever predicted about Jesus Christ came true. And therefore, we know that every prophecy at his first coming, that is, every prophecy about his second coming will likewise come true because the word of God is true and faithful and it'll endure forever. So anyway, we'll continue next week. Uh, I don't know. Let me see. How far do we get? Can anybody quickly tell, tell the rest of us how many homework questions to do? I only got up through verse... Through seven, thank you. I can always count on you. All right, will you do your homework questions through seven? And next week we're going to pick up with how he corrects them. They're saying, well, Moses is greater. We'll show them, he'll show them in three ways how he is much greater than Moses and how he is the true manna, which is so much greater than the other manna, which wasn't false manna, but he is the fulfillment of what the manna was predicting, was pointing to. All right, I'm sorry I didn't get any further, but um, that gives you another week of of sparing you all that deep theology. It gives me another week to study it, too. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for their attention. Thank you for their hunger and thirst to, to, uh, to know you better. And I pray, Lord, that each one was filled, Lord, this morning to satisfaction because you truly are the bread of life who satisfies. Now, I ask that you would be with each lady. Help her to truly be a testimony for you this week, to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Lord, if there's one here who has never, could be, one who has never asked Jesus to save her, that she has never acknowledged the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that he died for her sins. And if she was the only one to ever live, he would have loved her enough to die for her sins so that she might spend eternity with him. I pray, Lord, that she would take care, that she would strive to enter in at the narrow gate and that she would no longer labor for the meat that perishes of this world, but that she would labor for the meat that does not perish, that she would ask you to save her. All she has to do, like Peter, is say, Lord, save me, and he will do it if it comes from the heart. Father, we love you. We just praise you. We lift up your name. We thank you again for revealing yourself to us in your creation and in your word. And now... um, I just pray these things, Jesus, for your glory, for your sake. Amen.